Well, on behalf of Jasper and myself, I'm going to declare right now that we are officially angry with Corey that he would have such high horsepowered songs that enter right into the sermon. Shoot. It would be nice to sing that one again, wouldn't it? Well, listen, here we are today, church. We're ending a three-week series on biblical sexuality designed for glory. And uh, as we get right into today's, today's is a really hard one. So uh, I would like to lighten the sermon today, but I can't do it. I've tried to find ways. It's impossible. I don't believe the Lord wants today to be light. And uh, so I'm uh, letting you know that up front as we head into today's sermon, that today is not going to be... Um, well, today's just going to be a heavy one. Reminder, Bjorn started this by um, letting you know where our church stands as it relates to biblical sexuality. And, and a real quick reminder, and I encourage you, go back and watch this sermon if you still have questions about where this church stands um, in regard to biblical sexuality. But if I could put it in a nutshell right now, um, any sexual behavior outside of the marriage, and the marriage would be between one man and one woman assigned by God. Any sexual activity outside of that, our church considers to be sin. And again, Bjorn spent um, significant time in breaking that down for us, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to it if you do have questions. And then Jasper last week, he shared with us, how do we as brothers and sisters in Christ, how do we as those who claim relationship with Jesus, that are in deep and meaningful relationship with Jesus, how do we approach the unbeliever of the LGBTQ community, the one who has not given their life to the Lord. How do we approach them? And we do it, he shared, um, with the heart to share the gospel and to bring them to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ before even talking to them about, about their activity, their sexual activity. Today, today is designed for glory, a pure family. Today we're going to look at what the Bible has to say to us, the church, regarding the one who claims Christ, the one who is in relationship with Christ, yet is living in sexual sin. That's what today is. This is our mission, church. Our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who exalt Jesus Christ. And that's found in Matthew chapter 28. If I could put it this way for us. Look at it this way. We are either pointing people to Jesus or we're pointing people away from Jesus. I believe that every action, every word spoken that is heard or witnessed by anyone, whether inside the church or outside the church, either points people to the person of Jesus Christ or points them away from Jesus Christ. So allow me a moment of transparency. About 25 years ago was a a defining moment for me in the way I looked at the LGBTQ community. And here's what happened. Job I had out of college, I worked in the inside sales department. There were probably 12, 14 people a part of this department. We sat sat in cubicles. And we had a name list that we kept because some names are funny. Like... Bunny Covert is one of the names. I thought that was funny. I wrote it on the list. 
But there was an individual that would call in, and we all talked to all of our customers. An individual called in, and his name was Faye. And I'm sharing this today because Charles preached a sermon a while ago on the importance of shame in the life of the believer. And so Faye would call in, and he would say, this is Faye, and he would spell his name, F-A-Y. And Faye was effeminate. And the entire department knew where I stood in relationship with Jesus Christ. So out of my mouth would pour words that declared the person of Jesus Christ, and then on the other hand, I would mock Faye for a laugh. And I would say, this is Faye, F-A-Y with a lisp. The woman to my right, would, she would gently chastise me, gently, and she would say, oh, Todd, you shouldn't do that. Well, this went on for I don't know how long. It doesn't really matter. I did it. We show up at the Christmas party, my wife Andrea and I, we show up at a Christmas party, the company Christmas party, and this woman comes up to me, and guess what she does? She introduces me to her partner. The grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ was so profoundly real in that moment. I didn't feel him shoving me to the floor. He walked up next to me. The Lord did. He put his arm around me. And in that moment, I felt his mercy and his grace wash over me and say, the shame of that moment I know is enough for you. It brought me to a place of repentance I have not experienced since. Because for this woman, my mouth declared Christ in one moment, and then the next, it pointed her away from Christ. Shame on me, and I pray for her soul today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that we are ambassadors for Christ. We are to make God's appeal to a world that's watching on, both to the unsaved and to each other inside the church. Paul says, and so I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God has expectations for us, church, that we would be his ambassadors, that we would be his image bearers, both to the lost and to one another. We are the bride of Christ. You know what, since that moment, I have found it easier to share, to bear the image of Christ with the unbeliever. The Lord used that mightily in a profound way in my life, to share Jesus with unbelievers and be patient with them. I find it easier. It gets harder, though, when it comes to the family of Christ. Because in the family of Christ, we have this relational equity that's been built up over months Weeks and months and years worth of relationship. And it's easy. 
It's easy when things are smooth. But when the hard word that Jesus brings to us that needs to be spoken to the brother or sister in Christ, it becomes much harder. Galatians chapter 6, Paul says that we're to do good to all, especially those in the household of faith. Why? Because we are family. God wants his family to be pure. And it's often hard when we have to declare hard things. 2018 was a year of infamy for Wendy and I. We were on vacation. We spend our vacation at a cottage in in Canada. And it's in such a place that cell cell reception is sketchy at best. And so we don't even try. So we spent two weeks in Canada. As we drive back, and this is August of 2018, as we drive back into the country, turn our phones on and our phones are lighting up like crazy. For two specific individuals that we are in relationship with, two very dear, dear brothers in Christ, both relating to same-sex attraction and same-sex behavior. The one mixed alcohol with his temptation, and he got himself into some really, really, really big trouble. He's a man that declared relationship with Jesus Christ, married for 25 years, had three kids, all walking with the Lord. And because of his behavior, he lost his job, a very high-profile job. He lost his family, and he lost his reputation, and he spent a year in counseling, trying to recover from this. That was one call. The other was that a dear brother in Christ had just come out to his family that he was gay and that God is okay with it. Spent hours, hours walking with the Lord. Lord, if you don't have this for me, please remove it from me. And so he declared to his family, since the Lord didn't remove this from me, therefore God must be okay with it. And so I'm going to enter into relationship. And he had been in relationship with a man, a homosexual relationship with a man for at least six months. This is what we entered. We left vacation and we came back into the country to this. Why do I share this with you this morning? Because it's been real for me. I've essentially been writing this sermon since 2018. Lord, how do you want us to respond to this? Two very, very dear brothers in Christ to us. How do you want us to respond to them? This has been hard for a number of reasons. Number one, because of the relational disruption. Relationship could not be the same as long as they were a brother in Christ living in this sinful pattern. Also knowing that judgment is coming for both of them. There's one day going to be a day where they stand before the Lord, and if they continue on in this sinful pattern, unrepentant sexual sin, they're going to have to stand before the Lord and answer for why they were like that and why they did that, why they went against a very clear teaching in the Scripture. If they don't repent. And then for me... I'm going to stand before the Lord one day and have to answer for how I responded to both his word and them 
Am I going to do what the Bible says I'm supposed to do with them, or am I going to let it slide past and pray to God that he makes some kind of change without me doing what the Bible has to say? And then the wrestling got, it got frustrating, and here's why. The Lord said this to me. He said, I get it. One day, you and both of them are going to stand before the Lord one day in judgment. You're going to stand before me and have to answer for this. I get that. I get the relational disruption. He said, but listen, the one who declares Christ, the one who lives in relationship with me, or declares it anyway, and is living in sexual sin, he is profaning my name. He is robbing me of my deserved glory. He is dragging my name through the mud, and he is professing Christ and living like hell. That's what he's doing. He said, that matters more than your relational disruption. That matters more than him standing before judgment. That he is profaning my name and robbing me of my glory. Church, these are eternal matters. We are to be the pure bride of Christ. We are to be his family. And this is a hard one, folks, because he asks us to do some really hard things. And so before we get into today's message, let's pray. Father in heaven, I come before you right now. What a sensitive subject this is. And I'm asking now, Lord, that you would pour your spirit out on our church. Lord, that you would guide my mind and my heart. That you would declare through me the very word that you have for each individual here. And I pray that they would hear it in accordance with your good and perfect will. And that you, Lord Jesus, would get your glory through this church, Summit Church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the eternal matter at hand, church. God will not tolerate. God will not tolerate ongoing unrepentant sin in his family. He won't. Every next moment, every next moment is the next most critical moment for us and for the unrepentant. It is, because every next moment puts them one moment closer to having to answer to the Lord for why they lived like they did. God won't tolerate sin in his body, and he's going to judge. And so this is why we're doing this, church. Bjorn referred to it a couple of weeks ago, but but we're going to read this together, and we're going to see what Jesus has to say through a letter In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, to the church of Thyatira. Just listen to this. Revelation, chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. He says to them, I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But he says, I have this against you. He says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. 
Love the patience of our Lord. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And so this is what's going to happen, he says. To that church, you have permitted unbiblical teaching to come into the life of your church. And not only have you permitted it, because you've let this unrepentant, these unrepentant individuals come into the life of your church and bring their behavior, you give the unrepentant an inch and they're going to take a mile. And this is exactly what happened to the church of Thyatira. They started receiving teachings on sexual immorality. They started promoting it. They did not deal with it. God gave them time to repent. But because she refuses, because that church refuses to address the issue and refuses to take care of the one that's unrepentant, this is what he says. I'm going to throw her onto her sickbed. Throw her onto her sickbed. And in the hands of the living God, who will judge... The sickbed will not be a pretty place for anyone. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. This is what he says to the church. And you are seeing this everywhere today. I just learned a week ago that there's a very healthy church in the area. That while they're a healthy church, there is a list of things they will not address. And this is one of them. And here's why I have a concern for that, because it has to be addressed. We cannot permit it into the life of the church. God desires that his bride be pure. And so we address it today. Jesus Christ is being robbed of his deserved glory when someone lives in unrepentant sin. Look at what Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 to 11 says. Listen to the patience of our Lord in this. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. And then he says, for my own sake, for my own sake, God says, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. When someone professes Christ and they live in unrepentant sin, they are robbing God of the glory he deserves. And he says it in Isaiah 48. I'm not going to share that. He will not let unrepentant sin in his bride, with his bride, continue on. So this is who we're talking to today. I don't know if you're new with us today, but that this message is clearly, I want to be clear, this message is for those who call Summit Church their home. This is what we believe. Anyone who bears the name brother, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, If he is guilty of sexual immorality, this is the one that we are addressing today. The family of Christ, how we are supposed to approach the brother in Christ who is living in unrepentant sexual sin. This message is for us, and it's also for the one who is engaged in this, that would call this their church home. I do have a warning for the one who's in the battle 
whatever your, whatever your sexual temptation is, if you're in the battle right now, you remember the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 where he wrestled over the truth that I hate the things that I do. I do the very things I don't want to do and the things I want to do, I can't do them. And he says, wretched man that I am, who will save me? Stay in the battle. Stay in the battle. Never, ever give up. The one who has given up on the battle. You can only trample on the cross of Jesus Christ for so long. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversary. This is the way the Apostle Paul, this is, or excuse me, this is John Piper's analogy. The one who's given up on the battle and said, I'm going to feed my flesh with every pleasure I can possibly imagine is the one that stands next to the cross of Jesus Christ and turns to the Roman soldier and says, give me that spear. And every time you sin, you run the spear into the heart of Jesus over and over and over again. And so the warning is, repent, repent, repent. We want to help you with that. Here's my hope, that our priorities would be, they would be in order. Number one, that God would get his glory first. That would be your first concern, that you would set relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ aside. Make that number two. And then number one, that God would get his glory through you and through the life of this church. Let your light shine before others, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Luke chapter 14 says this, you know it. He says, unless you hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sister and even yourself, you cannot be my disciple. And here's what he's saying. Clearly, you know, he doesn't want you to hate your brother or sister in Christ. He wants you to love them. But his message is me first, me first, my glory first, and then let's deal with the family. And that you would consider priorities in order. God would get his glory, would be your first concern. And then that you would consider the eternal and spiritual well-being of your loved one. That you would trust God in all things. You trust in the Lord with all your heart. And you don't lean on your own understanding. In moments like this, we want to lean on our own understanding. We don't want to trust the Lord because the Lord's way is often, very often, harder than our way. These are hard things, church. The Word of God is asking us to do some really hard things. Okay, so with that said, let's take a look together, church, at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What we must do with the unrepentant sexual sin in our church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant 
Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, which Jasper addressed last week, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But, this is today, now I, write, now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? The unbeliever, the one who doesn't claim Christ, is the outsider. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? That's us, brothers and sisters in Christ. Holding each other accountable to doing the very things we profess. That is the full counsel of the word of God, Jesus Christ. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And I say this. Please show me another way. Please show me another way. I watched a man read that passage. knowing that someone very dear to him was living in unrepentant sexual immorality. He read that passage, he rolled back in his chair, and he looked up at the ceiling and said, not a word. And I say, show me another way. This is hard, hard, hard. What do we do with the unrepentant sexual sin in the family? This passage addresses it very, very clearly. Now, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. So you see here, you see a man who has had sex with his father's wife. Debaucherous. But look at how it's written. Sexual immorality is present in the church and of a kind... So he's pointing out one that's significantly disturbing while sexual immorality exists in the life of the church. And so what do we do with the unrepentant sexual sin in the family? Here's what we must do. Here's the first thing. 
And we have to, have to, have to be clear on this one. Know what it is that corrupts the body. Verse 11 says, anyone who bears the name of brother is guilty of sexual immorality. Know what it is that corrupts the body. And so here's what you can look for. The one who outright declares what is evil to be good. Isaiah chapter 5 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. It's the one that says, I have prayed about this. I have sought the counsel of others. I have read I have spent significant time, and here's where I fall down. That this particular type of sexual sin, God is okay with. The one who declares sin or evil to not be sin or evil. Very, very, very clear. That one needs to be addressed. The one who has completely given up on his battle against sin. Galatians chapter 5 talks about walking in the Spirit, not gratifying the desires of the flesh. This is the one that says, you know what? The pleasure I've tasted in this sin is too tasty for me to give up on. I'm tired of fighting the battle. I'm not going to fight the battle. I'm throwing my chest out in arrogance and pride. And I'm going to throw my life at it. The one who has completely given him or herself over to the gratification of the flesh. The one who is arrogant. Verse 1. The Apostle Paul rebukes the Corinthian church because they're throwing their chest back in arrogance. They're making a mockery of it. They're making a joke of it. And he says, don't do that. This is a very serious matter. The one who outright declares evil to be good and the one who has given up on the battle are very clear examples of people that we may not, we cannot permit to continue on in their unrepentant sin. But here's a word. We have to know what it is that corrupts the church. Be ready to ask tons and tons and tons of questions. Be patient. Be patient. Get to the heart of the matter. Know for sure what it is that corrupts the body. Because of the severity of this passage, we must be absolutely sure. What we must do with the unrepentant sexual sin in the family. We have to know what it is. And then here's another one. We must know what it is. Hold on a second. That was the first one. We must know what it is that corrupts the church. But second, we have to take action to purify it. And this is where it gets hard. Five times in 13 verses. Five times in 13 verses. Almost every other verse... Paul says, you must take action to purify the church. Let him who has done this been removed from among you. Verse 2. 
Verse 5, deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That's verse 5. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven, the leaven of evil. Verse 11, do not associate with the one who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality and others that are listed there. And verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. That's really, 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 really heavy. Five different times in five different ways, purify the church. There are two different approaches we could take. And I know, I know this process, and we're going to be turning to Matthew chapter 18 in a little bit, but I know this process is not, it's not a popular one in the life of the church, the broader context of the church. We practice church discipline here, but even as I say the word church discipline, I know that that causes a cringing, even for me, because it's been given a bad reputation. And it comes from what I believe are two different approaches to this. How do we deal with this unrepentant individual? One comes from a spirit of, it's time for you to get out. You're corrupting the church, and it must be clean, so you need to leave now. And then there's another, and this would be my heart's desire for each one of us, is that we would plead with a heart of compassion within full view what's coming for the individual that refuses to repent. That we plead with them. Why doesn't this happen in the church today? How often do you hear this? Well, you can't because you can't judge. Who are we to judge? Who are you to judge? Who am I to judge? When I hear that, it makes me wonder what they're even saying when they say, hey, we can't judge. We can't judge. Well, as we see in verses 12 and 13 in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we are called to judge each other. And so here's what that means for us. The judgment I believe that the one that says you can't judge, the one they're talking about, is one of condemnation. But what Paul is saying to us that we're to judge those inside the church, we are are holding each other accountable to living in accordance with the Word of God. That's all this is. We're holding each other accountable to living in accordance with the Word of God. That's what Paul is saying when he says that we're to judge each other. Famous can't judge passages, Matthew chapter 7, judge not lest ye be judged. Jesus said those words. Hey, you can't judge. Jesus said, judge judge not lest ye be judged. Here's what Jesus is saying. It is only up to God the Father who brings the condemning type of judgment that Jesus is speaking about right here. It's not on us to condemn. When Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged, he's saying, It's not on us to condemn. It's God the Father. John chapter 8, you know this one. The woman caught in adultery. There's a line of men standing, holding stones, getting ready to stone this woman. And and Jesus has two messages. He has a message for her, which is a form of judgment, and he has a message to the men holding the stone. They're about ready to condemn this woman to death. And he says, any one of you who is without sin be the first to cast the stone. And he says, it's not on you to take those stones and and condemn her to death. That's not on you. 
And then he says to the woman, in essence, if you would follow me, you must turn and sin no more. You don't have the right to judge, meaning you don't have the right to condemn. And if you want to be a follower of mine, you must turn away from your sin. You can't judge. Here's what J.D. Greer says about judgment. Judgment is what you do after you tell someone the truth that determines whether or not you are judging them. Judgment is condemnation. You judge someone not when you assess their position, but when you dismiss them as a person. And this is what we're looking for, church. When we are taking action to purify the church, we are seeing them as a person that will stand before the Lord someday. Not a sickness, not a disease, not something that we are ready to cast out in order to keep the church pure. We want to treat them with love and patience and respect. You know what? When I read this, when we're supposed to judge each other, hold each other accountable, I've been an elder for 13 years. For 13 years I've been an elder, and there have been seasons in my ministry in the life of this church where I say, Lord, I, I can't do this. I'm not qualified. You know my wrestlings with sin. I don't want to do this. And you know what he says to me? I have put you in a position. He says, I've put you in a position that requires you to be qualified So he says, be qualified to deal with the sin you know is existing in the life of your church. And so church, I say this, we're not there yet, but there's a, in just a few minutes, we're going to look at, you have a part in this too. I can't judge. I cannot deal with that because I know the the sin I have in my life. I'm calling you and I'm asking you to be qualified. Be qualified to hold each other accountable, your brothers and sisters in Christ accountable. Be humble to confront. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, it lists more. If you look just across the page, these people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Be qualified by being humble as you approach, knowing that if Jesus Christ removed just one ounce of his grace from you, you would be in the same position as the one who is living in unrepentant sin. You are covered by his grace. He has brought you to the foot of the cross. He has forgiven you for your sins. And he has brought you into new life and relationship with him. You remember it is him that did that for you. And that's what you desperately want as you plead for this individual to walk away from his or her unrepentant sin. Luke chapter 6, you know it, log and spec. How can you possibly expect to go after the unrepentant speck in your brother's eyes? If you have a forest full of logs that need to be dealt with in yours. 
Be humble. Be qualified. And take action. Here's another one. Hey, hey, you can't. You can't judge because Jesus says you can't judge. That's one of the famous passages that keep people, that keep churches from actually addressing unrepentant sin. Here's another one. Well, you must love. And that's not loving. First Corinthians chapter 5 is not loving. It cannot mean that. I heard someone who claims Christ make that statement. That passage cannot mean what it says. How many times in 13 verses does God need to say, the purity of my church is paramount? That's not loving. Well, if you believe that, I want to challenge you with this thought. We are not the author of love. We don't decide what is loving. Here's what we are tempted to do when we come to hard passages like that. This We turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and we say, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. And we skip over the rest where it says, That love does not rejoice with wrongdoing. Unrepentant sexual sin is wrongdoing. And we cannot give even the remotest expression of acceptance to that in the life of the church. We are not the author of love. And church, this is where it gets even harder. Great. Oh, great. If, if, if God decides, if he decides that the most loving thing for this person is to have them out of the body, well, who in the world is going to minister to him then? Who's going to minister to him if he's not in us for us to love him back to Repentance. Look at verse 5. Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that, so that his soul, his spirit, may be saved in the day of the Lord. These are eternal matters, church. Eternal matters. The pleasure of people in this life pales in comparison to what eternity has in store for each one of us. What do you want for yourself? What do I want for myself as it relates to the sin I struggle with? I want Jesus to crush my flesh. And what he's saying right now is, this beloved person in your life is to a place where he needs some significant affliction in his life in order to get his attention. So think of it in in terms of the prodigal son. The prodigal son says, Father, 
I am ready to go out and experience life on my own. Give me my portion of the inheritance and send me on my way. So the father does. And what happens in that moment is the son decides, I no longer want the covering of my father and my family. I want to go out and I want to do it on my own. I want to Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1, do this. I want to isolate myself. I want to remove influence from the body so that I can seek my own desire and you will get to the place. That individual, the prodigal son, will get to the place where he breaks out against all sound judgment And he will not hear from us. And where do we see the prodigal at the end? After he has lived his life with prostitutes, he has burned through all of dad's money, he finds himself in a pig pen, famine hits the land. Guess what? Famine destroys the body. I see him in the pig pen with his skin hanging on his bones. As the Lord as the father turned him over for the destruction of his flesh, hoping upon hope that he would return. And when the affliction got to a place where he couldn't take it anymore, he humbled himself and he went home. What do we do when unrepentant sexual sin is in the family? We need to know what it is we're addressing, number one. Number two, we must act. And then number three, you must assume your role. This is on you. This is on you. This is on you. You must assume your role. Notice Paul isn't saying, hey, you mark that man. You mark the sexually immoral in the church. And when I come back, I'll deal with them. He doesn't say that. He puts it on the church and he says, you deal with it. He places it firmly on the church to deal with. And that means every single one of us. Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, and you're saying, well, yeah, that guy might be a brother in Christ, and he might be in my church, but he really hasn't sinned against me. Well, Well, you're not right when you think that way. Because if you are a part of the body of Christ... The unrepentant sin of another is impacting you, whether you are close to it or not. You are a part of the body, and he has brought corruption in the body. He is profaning the name of Christ, and it's time to deal with it. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You go to him with pleading, seeking understanding, with great patience. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, and I pray in those situations that he would listen to you first. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. You rally help to your side to plead with this individual, to walk away from his sin. And then verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And if we can harmonize that with 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that says that he's got to go. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says, You who are spiritual, though, you restore them with a spirit of gentleness. This entire process is to be done 
with caution, with patience, with mercy, with graciousness, with a desire to see them come to repentance, with gentleness. This is the absolute last resort. And so if I can give you this analogy, consider your own child sitting on a train track. And you are separated right now. Let's say you're at a family function in a park, and you are separated from a train track by a fence. You have not the ability to get to the train track, and you see your child sitting on the train track. You know it's a dangerous place for them, for your child to be. You start trying to encourage your child to come off the track. You're not mad. You just realize, hey, you shouldn't be there. Your child either can't hear you or isn't listening. And then you hear the whistle off in the distance. And things get a little more urgent, don't they? And so your pleading with your child to get off the track becomes more and more urgent. There's no, there's no time for anger. There's not, a, there's not an aggressive response. It turns into this desperate pleading for your child to get off the track. Because judgment's coming. Every next moment is life's next most important moment. They're not hearing you or they're not listening. And so you call your family around and you plead together louder and louder as you hear the train getting closer and closer. And your family is screaming and yelling and the child still isn't listening. What you are feeling in that moment should be what drives your response to the unrepentant sinner in your church and in your life. The two individuals I told you about when Wendy and I drove back into the country in August of 2018, after eight months of counsel, one of them said, hey, I'd like to meet with you. I couldn't wait for that. He laid out the last 10 years of his life in front of me that I had no idea. No idea. He has spent the last six months going from person to person to person to person to person who was hurt by his sin, seeking their forgiveness for hurting them. And I'm weeping as he's telling me this because I said, If you're not here doing this today, do you know what I would have to do with you? I didn't even have to turn to the passage. He said, you would have to have nothing to do with me. And I wept harder because he's right. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, our desire is repentance. We want to see brokenness. We want to see people turn from that. And I am so happy to say that he is living in repentance And Wendy asked him, are you ever tempted to go back to that? And he said, absolutely I am. He said, but the peace 
that, that God has given me since bringing me out of that lifestyle, I would never trade that peace for a moment of the pleasure I had in that life. That's what we want. But the other one is as arrogant as you could imagine. And this is what's scary. Romans chapter 1 is coming to fruition in this man's life. His thinking is... It's messed up. And it seems to be getting more and more messed up. Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 to 21 says this. Church, it's my burning desire that when I enter into heaven, that I see the faces of loved ones that I interacted with. Because eternity is way long. He says, do not store, Jesus says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. And so let me challenge you with this. Don't spend the next 30 or 40 or 50 years trying to maintain some level of relationship with someone Storing up for yourself relational treasures here on earth. Let's do what God says. Let's, let's let the flesh of the individual be destroyed. And let's store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. Trust God's way. It is the most eternally loving way. God's way is always the right way. So let me throw, just as we wrap things up right now, some personal practicalities at you. If you're not in this right now, if you're not in this battle right now with someone Now is the time to decide that you're going to do the right thing, that you're going to trust the Lord. Don't wait until you're emotionally charged by this ind an individual in your life, the loved one's unrepentant sin. Don't wait until you're emotionally, emotionally riled up. You decide now, decide now to trust in the Lord and his wisdom. Here's another one. Be sure you have the relational platform to speak into this person's life. Have the right relational platform. If you have been a self-righteous, judgmental person in that, in that person's life, you're, they're not going to listen to you. You confess that to them because you have no business confronting them if that is the reputation you've developed in that person's life. And listen, as it relates to each other, you let them know where you stand now. Let them know where you stand now. Wendy and I have said to our sons and our daughters, we love you so much that we're committing right now to doing things God's way. So if you get left If you turn from the Lord, if you're living in unrepentant sin, you can expect 
more than just a call from us. We are running after you like you are laying down on a train track. We're coming after you. Let those in your life know where you stand as it relates to unrepentant sin. And let them know you love them so much you're going to be coming after them. Be sure you have the relational platform. Be patient and be slow. Don't demand, but plead. Act in obedience and pray your guts out. And this is a really hard one. Here's the last one. Receive the God-given grace of separation when it comes. Because imagine this. Imagine, imagine the father with the prodigal son having to stand and witness how his son is living. It's, I'm telling you what, it is enough of a torment to know that your son or your daughter or your brother in Christ, your sister in Christ is off living like hell. It's bad enough just to know that, but to have to witness it. Receive the grace of separation and pray your guts out. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 is like 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And he says, If anyone does not obey what is said in this letter, take note of him and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. But, he says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. In all of this, in all of this, when separation comes, it doesn't mean you cross on the other side of the street. It doesn't mean you don't respond to the text. What it means is you now are in a position where you are calling them to repentance 100% of the time. And pray your guts out. It's hard stuff, church. Come tonight. We'll talk about it more. I know this is a very sensitive and hard subject. But I hope to see you tonight. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray now that you would help us to trust in you with all our heart. Know, Lord, that you know the most loving way. Lord, help us to not lean on our own understanding. Help us to set our own understanding aside and help us to trust in you. Lord, may we have the right relationship in order to address these things. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would pour your, your, your spirit out on the one right now that is living in an unrepentant lifestyle. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for the cross, for saving us, for giving us a way out. And I pray, Lord, that our eyes would be fixed on you in absolutely everything. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Just reading the room and knowing that this is such a tender thing, as Todd said, I realized that even in the midst of our body today, there would be some who would receive this with clarity and joy. Others who would be frustrated by the hardness of this. Some of you wrestling with sin. We're all wrestling with sin, but perhaps the, the unrepentant nature 
you're wrestling with that, it's very personal, maybe those who you love dearly who fall into this category. And so I realize in a room this size, there's many mixed responses. But we know this, and I love in that scripture that Todd shared, such were some of you, I know that Jesus is the one who changes hearts. Jesus is the one who brings conviction. Jesus is the one who gives wisdom about what love looks like and gives discernment about how love is delivered by a case-by-case basis. And so I want to encourage you to stand. And regardless of where, let's go ahead and stand up together. We're going to sing. And regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, we must all agree that Jesus is the way maker. He is the way, the one that changes hearts. He's the one that brings clarity and understanding. He is the one who performs his word. He's the one who sends his spirit to comfort. He's the one that turns lives around and, and protects them from destruction. And he's done it for many of us in this room. He's done it for me. And I can stand here getting ready to lead a song with you, very aware of my sin, very aware of my shortcomings, very aware of the things that I continually go around the mountain with and wrestle with. And I'm grateful for the fight. I'm grateful for the Holy Spirit that causes us to keep engaging in that battle. Because it's not about us and our performance. It's about Jesus, who is the way maker, the one who works in our hearts and changes us. So as we sing the song this morning, can we, can we set our focus on him? And can we, can we pray desperately for those who might be described by this message today, that our hearts would ache for them, that we would plead with the Lord to do what he's done for us, which is turn lives around, change hearts, forgive sin, change desires. Can we desperately pray that for the ones that we love and even over our own lives this morning? Let's set our focus on Jesus and trust him with the rest. Lord, we need you. So move among us. Lord, we pray, do this. 
You're here, you're touching every heart. I worship you, I worship you. You are here, you're healing every life. Turning lives around I worship you I worship you You are here You're mending every heart I worship you
You know, the one thing Todd kept saying over and over and over and over again was the unrepentant believer. Maybe you're here this morning and, you know, your heart's been pounding the whole time because you're so very evident of your own struggle and sin as you listen. Maybe you start feeling isolated and separated from the love of brothers and sisters in God. Listen, if you're in the boxing ring with your own desires and sins, join the party. Come sit down and I'll tell you the own desires that I have that I'm trying to fight every single day of my life. That's what we're all doing. But for the person who says, man, I'm I'm done fighting. I'm done fighting. I want this. I love this. I'm going to have this. Listen, the Bible says that God's mercy and His grace and His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And so when no longer His patience and His kindness breaks our heart to say, I don't deserve you. Look what I'm doing and you still love me. And that no longer helps. God has to take drastic measures because He loves His children. So don't let it get to the point where drastic measures have to come for God to get your attention to say that will never satisfy you. That way leads to death and destruction and I love you enough to intervene. And maybe you're saying, I know I'm unrepentant right now, but I don't even know where to start because I love this too much. Starts with this, a simple prayer of confession where you say, God, I have this in my life. I want it. I don't want to get rid of it and I want to keep going this way. But I don't have the strength to get rid of it. So God, if something's going to happen, you've got to do it because I can't start there. And I guarantee you, you let God in. You simply open the door and you let God in. You will see the way maker begin to work. And you come talk to someone and we will fight that journey with you, alongside you, because we love you and we're in the fight too. Be encouraged. But recognize the reality and the seriousness of life. Be back tonight as we dive deeper into maybe answering some of the questions that you have that we couldn't get in three weeks. Six o'clock tonight, we'll see you here. You are love, church.